Hello, this is Dr. Michael Ruscio, and today we'll be mapping histamine intolerance on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking again with my friend, Dr. Michael Ruscio. Michael Ruscio is a doctor, clinical researcher, and best-selling author whose practical ideas on healing chronic illness have made him an influential voice in functional and alternative medicine. His work has been published in peer-reviewed medical journals, and he speaks at integrative medical conferences across the globe. Dr. Ruscio also runs a popular website and podcast at drruscio.com, in addition to his clinical practice located in Northern California. You can hear more from Dr. Ruscio on elemental diets in episode 83 of the podcast. But today, let's talk histamine intolerance. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Ruscio. Hi, thanks for having me back. Well, I heard you give an excellent presentation on histamine, and I knew I had to bring you back on to illuminate our understanding of what histamine intolerance is and how we can work with it in practice. And I'm wondering if you could start us right off today by talking into what you see as the most common root causes of histamine intolerance. Fortunately, the, the common root causes of histamine intolerance tend to be these gut imbalances that we're all mm. grappling with to begin with. So right. it's not to say that we have to necessarily treat histamine intolerance vastly different than we would IBS or IBD, which is all the more reason why it's important for clinicians to have a good algorithm for treating the gut and understanding that a well-constructed gut algorithm will get you very far. But just in brief, diet definitely matters. Your standard elimination type diet is a great place to start. There's also evidence showing that a low FODMAP diet may lead to up to an eight-fold decrease in histamine levels. So some of our basic dietary starting points can work, as can things like probiotics, antimicrobial therapy, gut soothing and repair nutrients, and even things that are a bit more, I guess we could say, kind of second-tier considerations, aminoglobulin therapy or mm. other antihistamines. But I guess the main thing for the clinician to be aware of out of the gate is you don't want to necessarily go right after treating histamine intolerance, exactly. vitamin C, quercetin, bromelain, because all you're doing there is treating the symptoms and you're missing the root cause, which are these inflammatory, dysbiotic, food reactive issues in the gut. And if we can get those things right, that truly addresses the core, the cause of the histamine intolerance. I really loved how you spoke into that and highlighted dysbiosis and the connections and what you were able to talk about, which I'm hoping you can also do here with the villi and how the villi impact the DAO production, because we often, like you said, go right for addressing the histamine and patients are coming in, identifying themselves as histamine 
histamine intolerant and bypassing those underlying roots. So can you talk about the ways in which the DAO production is impacted by gut health? Yes. Again, we want to be careful not to make things more complicated than we need to. And this is this is a endemic problem in functional medicine, yes. which is jumping right to the esoteric, yes. missing the fundamentals. And sometimes the people who are, quote unquote, the experts in a given area, they end up having a more fundamental based approach. And that's how they, you know, somehow are able to get these chronic cases actually well. I call we these the non-negotiables. We have right. to make sure we back it up, address the non-negotiables instead of running mm-hmm. away with what we think is fancy. Yep. Well said. We do know that the villi of the intestines secrete the primary enzyme for digesting, metabolizing histamine, DAO, diamine uh, oxidase. And we also know that intestinal bacteria will directly release histamine and that in certain dysbiotic conditions like SIBO, you can see in some cases a damage to the intestinal villi, which are responsible for secreting the DAO enzyme. So dysbiosis has a threefold impact on histamine intolerance. One, the bacteria, when they overgrow, secrete more histamine in and of themselves. The bacteria also can stimulate the immune system, which then releases histamine as part of the immune response. And then third, if the dysbiosis is causing any type of intestinal damage, it's damaging the part of the intestines that secretes the DAO enzymes themselves. So we see so much here that shows us we have to get the dysbiosis right in order to get to the root cause of the histamine intolerance. If we're looking at extensions of the GI tract, is the liver involved in any way with the DAO or processing the histamine? That's a great question. And I did not come across that in any of my research into this area. I, I can't say that I've purposefully looked to see if if liver has an impact. I would not be surprised if it did. But remember, again, as one proxy for answering this question, we know that when we give probiotics to those with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, their liver enzymes and liver function improve. So we do know that much of liver pathology or taxation or inflammation, whatever you want to call it, can be a byproduct of what's going on in the gut. So I would argue that by getting the gut right, we have a good chance of, of unburdening the liver and allowing it to work in, a, in an unfettered fashion. Yeah, it's one of those things I think we also miss when we are evidence enslaved, the ways in which there might be correlative versus causative impacts on the full body systems that by addressing, we can remedy or resolve some of the upstream routes that we're trying to address. Yep. Well said. So when we're thinking about histamine intolerance, I also heard you speak about carbohydrate metabolism or malabsorption. Can you talk a little bit more into how that might impact somebody's response, their histamine response? Absolutely. This is an interesting paper that was published in the Canadian Journal of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, where they found that anywhere from a third to 55% of patients with these vague GI symptoms that we're all seeing could actually be diagnosed as histamine intolerant and it, it had a large overlap with carbohydrate malabsorption. And it's likely because there is a commonality in terms of what's causing, as an example, lactose intolerance it could be the same thing that could be driving histamine intolerance. So there could be this dysbiosis 
this unhealthy gut milieu that's interfering with brush border enzyme release by the villi, and that's manifesting as carbohydrate malabsorption. So these do tend to go together, but then also some studies have shown that food allergy, a little bit tangential here, but food allergy and histamine intolerance can be distinguished. So it may not purely be a food reactivity case, although there's overlap, some of this does seem to be more so a result of histamine intolerance itself. I see. So speaking of food sensitivity, food allergy, are there other allergens that we should be looking at and sort of lowering the load or decreasing the bucket that somebody Mm -hmm. might be exposed to? And can you speak into some of those? Yep. So this is very easy, thankfully. You want to go through the same elimination type diet that you take any patient through in terms of having them eliminate commonly problematic foods, your gluten, potentially grains, soy, dairy. If they are exhibiting other potential signs of food allergens, just do your standard elimination diet. A paleo diet is a good template to start, although you don't have to do a paleo diet, but essentially you go into your elimination reintroduction and if you're still floundering after that, that's when you can consider also pairing with the personalized elimination reintroduction, a low FODMAP diet. And that's really where you start with diet. It doesn't have to be any more difficult than that. And when do you go to a low histamine diet? I know I have clinically in a few instances where I'm working with somebody who's highly anaphylactic, had to go there, who actually has blood measures of high histamine. Is there a time and a place for that in your clinic? Yep, there definitely is. I would recommend someone looks at a low histamine diet as kind of the third step. You'll start with an elimination diet for three to four weeks, then consider escalation to a low FODMAP diet. Give that about two to three weeks to evaluate if it's working or not. You're not going to see all of your improvements in two to three weeks, but it'll be your initial evaluation period. And then from there, if you still need more help, that's when you consider also adding in a low histamine diet, which can help. But Remember, we want to start with the most foundational yes. issue. So if someone's having histamine intolerance because they are you know, atypical celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitive, then having them follow a low histamine diet is having them eat around the problem that gluten is inflaming and damaging right. one their gut. Absolutely. So that's why the histamine diet, the low histamine diet, isn't the first thing that you employ. It also, it's hard to do these diets. I think when people go too far too fast, they actually see a lack of compliance. And then they're Mm -hmm. wondering why their clients or patients aren't complying. And I I think we really need to stair step this so people get in the groove of doing Mm -hmm. elimination diets without enforcing so much so fast. What about other lifestyle factors? What about mold, stress, exercise, anything else we should be thinking about when we're looking at patients with histamine intolerance? I look at a kind of scope here and I have a dividing line between your basic dietary lifestyle and environmental interventions you want to start with. This would be time with friends, time for Mm -hmm. relaxation, enough Mm -hmm. sleep, time in the sun, all those basics that we're going to go through. 
I would start there and I would not go to the more esoteric or difficult interventions, environmentally speaking, until after you've gone through the rest of the algorithm for histamine intolerance that I talk about in this lecture. Now, these other environmental interventions would be testing your home for mold. That can be ambiguous. It can be expensive. It can be time yes. consuming. And you want to make sure that someone may not have a somewhat normal level of mold, but a hyperreactive immune system that may be driven by the histamine intolerance itself. So you want to start with the host and get them healthy and then consider if they're non-responsive going into a deeper dive into their environment. I'm really just thinking about the approach you're talking about and how what you're saying is what I, like I say, I call the non-negotiables. That's tier one for me and all the practitioners I train. It's like you have to go back to tier one. Oftentimes we're rushing ahead, but patients mm -hmm. are rushing ahead too. And they'll come in and say, I tried a gluten-free diet or I tried a paleo diet. It didn't work for me, yet they're still symptomatic. And mm -hmm. they don't necessarily understand that this is the confluence of everything everything. And until we clear the muddy waters, we can't really see which factors are at play. And then a lot of people are coming in with this fancy testing. So speaking of testing, if you had to be doing testing for somebody who was suffering with histamine intolerance, which testing would be at play? I would not recommend testing for histamine intolerance itself because the testing there is not well identified. There's a pretty large range of the, the serum test of, of diamine oxidase mm -hmm. that may be considered diagnostic. And that range is so broad and it's also influenced by the patient presentation and the patient's response or lack of response to a low histamine diet that it doesn't really tell you anything informative clinically. If you wanted to test, I I would test for various types of dysbiosis or infection. So yes. you could consider a SIBO test or candida or, a, or your typical kind of dysbiosis infection gut workup because that would give you something that you could treat causally. Testing to quantify histamine intolerance is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's testing a symptom of exactly. the underlying cause. So it's not going to tell you anything that you could do clinically any differently. Yeah. I've been thinking of this as three roots, many branches, right? So the mm -hmm. roots would be our antecedents, our GI and our inflammatory balance. And then the many branches are all these signs and symptoms that we experience. So when somebody is experiencing histamine intolerance, if we went to the signs and symptoms, is there anything we might see that's unusual besides the things we might associate with histamine overproduction? Well, I guess it depends on what a particular clinician is associating with histamine uh, production. Sure. Uh, the So you can have non-gut symptoms. That That's something to maybe understand that if someone, is, especially neurological, I'll, I'll certainly think if someone's having neurological or dermatological or even rheumatic type symptoms that are otherwise unknown in terms of what is driving them, that will oftentimes tip me off. The other thing that I think is more practical, if a patient has ever said, I tend to feel better when I eat worse, what you may be seeing is someone who's, when they're eating healthily, eating kind of a, a lower carb paleo type diet that is oftentimes inadvertently rich in histamine, your mm. avocados, your sauerkraut, your kombucha, your spinach, uh, you know, some of your berries that are high in histamine. So they're, they're eating, uh, 
high histamine diet as their healthy diet, even though they don't mean to be. And then when they go off plan, they're eating maybe some grains and some and some other foods that are not high histamine and they're saying, I feel better the mm. worse that I eat. Mm. So that's that's one thing to potentially indicate that histamine intolerance could be at play. Oh, really good clinical pearl there. Dr. Rusho, when you look at the functional nutrition matrix, is there anything that we didn't cover that you would want clinicians to know about histamine intolerance? I would want clinicians to know that probiotics seem to be a viable therapeutic option here. And while I don't think we have perfect data to answer this question, I, I think it's fairly defensible to say you do not need to use a histamine-free probiotic. This is one of many an example, unfortunately, of making things more complicated in functional medicine than they have to be mm-hmm. and getting so distracted with the bells and whistles that you miss the boat. And mm-hmm. the boat here is that we have a fairly impressive amount of data where probiotics have actually shown to be successful treatments for conditions known to suffer from high histamine. So the studies that are looking at conjunctive rhinositis, allergic rhinitis, uh, other environmental reactivity, urticaria, Many a condition that are known to be associated with high histamine levels have shown the ability to improve from using probiotics. So it really shoots a hole in the argument that you must use a histamine-free probiotic in treating histamine intolerance. And again, remember that we're not using the probiotics to treat the histamine. We're using the probiotics to treat the underlying dysbiosis and gut dysfunction that underlies and causes the histamine intolerance. So we can make the probiotic aspect of histamine intolerance much easier when we focus on using probiotics that are clinically tolerated by the patient rather than trying to conform them to the histamine producing or non-producing rules. Ooh, really brilliantly said. Thank you so much, Dr. Ruscio. I appreciate all the brilliance she shared with us today. Been a pleasure. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes my son, Gilbert Nakayama, on sound production, along with Carla Schaefer, as well as Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can visit us and hear more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode ready and waiting for you, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll be sure to drop into your inbox with a really short reminder that a new episode is ready for you. Plus, you have an open invitation to email us. Please do. We want to know who you'd like to hear on the podcast and what you'd like to see mapped on the 15-Minute Matrix. You can always email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.